Amen. <clears throat> well, um, again, I want to welcome our brothers and sisters from the downtown church. This morning, I want, we're continuing in a gospel series on John, and I just want to start out by saying that there are many in this, people in this world who claim to know and love God, aren't there? But very often, their lives look no different than anyone else's. Is it possible to love God without obeying him? And as Christians, we know that, well, we are saved, we are just sinners saved by God's grace, we still struggle with sin. So how can we live out our love for God better by obeying him more and more in our lives? See, today's passage in our continuing sermon series in John, we're going to examine the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit aids us to express our love for God by how we live day to day. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to examine it in three different parts and see how each part points back to how the, the Holy Spirit ministers in our lives. Now this passage just resonates again and again with, this, with statements about the relationship between love and obedience. We see it in verse 15, then in verse 21, again in verse 23 and 24, and finally in verse 31. It's this repeated refrain. Now, this emphasis on love and obedience shouldn't surprise us based on where we are in John. We just looked at a passage in which Jesus said that when we pray for things in his name, we will receive it. But the question is, how could we possibly pray in his name in any meaningful way without obedience? And this entire uh, private teaching, this last teaching of Jesus to his disciples that runs from John 13 through 17 it's been examining love. It started off by Jesus demonstrating his love for his disciples by washing, his feet, washing their feet. And then he expressed his love for them and commanded them to love one another in the same way that he loved them. And now here we see that he's turned to their love for him. In verse 15, if you want to look at it, verse 15 of John 14 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Such a simple statement. And I think that's useful in a culture that tends to look at love strictly in emotional terms. The problem with that is that emotions aren't really measurable, are they? And even if they were, I'm not sure how useful that would be because while some people are more emotional than other people, that doesn't mean that they love better or more now, does it? Now, this is a useful statement because it gives us some way to look at our love and gives us a sense of how big is our love. And if you want to ask yourself, how much do I love God? The simple question is, well, how much do you obey him, right? This passage repeatedly teaches us that true love for Christ obeys. True love for Christ obeys. Now, we have to understand, this isn't the way we measure all the loves in our life. I would hardly say, um, I would hardly measure my love for my children based on how much I obey them. But there's a great difference between loving another person and loving the eternal God. When you're loving another person, you're loving someone of equal value with you. But not so with God. God is greater than us in every possible way. And so our love for him works itself out in devotion. See, if we really love God, we'll be devoted to him, 
and will follow and obey his commandments. This obedient love is the kind of love that true believers have for our God. We don't do it perfectly, but as we love and obey him, there's a trajectory in our lives to an increasing obedience. Now, this truth may be useful, but if I'm honest with you, I find it a little discouraging at times too. You see, we all struggle to follow Christ's commands. We all fail at times. When it comes to measuring our love for God based on our obedience to him, I think many of us are just confronted by the feebleness of our love for our Lord. But Christ's purpose in this passage isn't to accuse us. It isn't to discourage his disciples or us this morning. He knows he's about to leave them and go to the cross And they won't understand it at first. And even after they do, they're going to face persecution and difficulties in their life in this earth. So he wants to prepare them for the long road ahead that he sees and they don't yet see. And he wants to encourage them to continue in obedience through that time. So Jesus is going to tell them about one he is giving to them to help them to lovingly obey. And let's look at this first passage that introduces the Holy Spirit to us that runs from verses 15 to 17 of John chapter 14. Now, I've already looked at 15, but I want to read it again. So, please look into your Bibles. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, never, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In this passage, Jesus begins a series of teachings on the Holy Spirit throughout this upper room uh, discourse with his disciples about the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see in our passage is it isn't just that uh, true love for the Holy Spirit obeys, but true love for Christ, sorry, true love for Christ obeys, but true love for Christ obeys through the Holy Spirit. If all true believers love like this, it's because, as we see in verse 16, all true believers have the Holy Spirit in them. And here in verse 16, you'll see he's called a helper. And that's capitalized because that's a title for the Holy Spirit. Now, the word, the original word in the Greek, is a little tricky to translate into English, English as some words never quite correspond to any, exactly with any English word. The old King James Version used to translate it as a comforter. And that was back when comforter meant someone who strengthens and helps you. But over hundreds of years, that word tends to mean today someone who consoles you. And that's not really the right meaning anymore. Some translations call him a counselor. And that works well if your mind first turns to legal counsel. But I think too many of us turn to sort of um, the counselor's uh, couch and, and therapeutic counseling, and that wouldn't be the right sense here. Now, many modern translations have chosen advocate, which works well, because it's one who speaks and acts on your behalf. But the translation we're looking at this morning and others have, have just decided to use the broader term helper, because, well, it means advocate. John seems to apply it in a broader sense in this passage. But my concern with the term helper is that often in English, a helper, you get help from someone a little under you, someone who is a little inferior to you. And my mind always goes back to when I taught kindergarten. 
and uh, it would come to rug time in the morning meeting, and, and I'd ask, who wants to be my helper this morning to help me with the uh, calendar? But of course, that's not the kind of helper that's in mind here. If you want to think of it, you might think of the Prime Minister enacting financial laws to help those worst hit by COVID-19 and helping them in that way. Or a lifeguard who helps someone who is drowning. The idea is of one greater than us helping us in exactly the areas where we would otherwise be helpless. Jesus brings up this Holy Spirit after this call to loving obedience because it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to love in this way. See, he works in us to bring out the righteous obedience that we can't do on our own. But notice, in our verse, it says he's another helper. So that means that there's been a first helper that the Holy Spirit is taking over from. And John, I think, is a little bit more clear in 1 John 2 and 1 that that other helper is uh, Jesus. And there he writes, if anyone sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Remember, that's the same word as helper. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And here we see Jesus' role as a helper or an advocate continuing even as he's ascended in the glories and intercedes for us at the right hand of the throne on high. But that's a little bit different a role than when he was living among the disciples, walking with them daily in the nitty-gritty of life. That particular role of helping is going to be taken over after Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't yet for the disciples, but that has long since happened for believers today. And, and so verse 17 continues. And um, this uh, helper, we see, first of all, it's, he's going to be with us forever, which is a beautiful truth. And then we see he's called the Spirit of Truth. And that shouldn't surprise us any more than Christ is our helper and the Spirit is our helper, that this Spirit is called the, the Spirit of Truth, and Christ, just a few verses before this, back in 14 and 6, said, I am the way and the truth. These incredible similarities and roles between the Spirit and the Son don't surprise us because we know that the Son is the second member of the Trinity, and the Spirit is the third. They are distinct persons, and yet one in essence. They are both God. Verse 17 continues and says, Of this Spirit, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the experience of the Spirit is limited to true believers. That does not mean that the Spirit is not active in the world as we're going to see in coming chapters. Yet knowing and receiving the Spirit, if they know and receive him, then they become Christians and they're no longer part of the world. But then he turns to the disciples and he says, You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I think the verb tense here is really important. You notice it says he, is, he dwells with you right now, and a day is coming when he will be in you. And as we've already said, that day came at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to believers. But that day isn't yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't been sent yet. So we might ask ourselves, in what sense is the Holy Spirit dwelling with them now, and how do they know the Spirit right now, even though he hasn't yet been sent to them? Well, I'd suggest that they know him through Christ, and he's been dwelling with them through Christ. It's very similar to what Christ just said earlier. When, when Thomas had said, show us the Father, and Christ looked at him and said, Thomas, if you've seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the same way, to know Jesus is to know the Holy Spirit. And thus, if Jesus has been dwelling with them, the Holy Spirit has been dwelling with them through him. 
And so we're introduced to the Holy Spirit here because true love for Christ obeys through the Holy Spirit. But let's continue reading in verses 18 to 24 of John 14. Verses 18, if you want to look at your Bible, please, says this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will, I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the words that you hear, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, Christ knows that his disciples are about to feel abandoned when he's crucified. So he starts, he continues in verse 18 and says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, the world will not see me, will see me no more, but you will see me. And the idea here is that their bereavement will be short because Christ will come to them in the resurrection. Then gloriously, he concludes at the end of verse 17, I'm uh, sorry, the end of verse 19, because I live, you also will live. What a beautiful verse. Because he lives in the resurrection, the disciples will live as well. But we might ask, Jesus and thinking of his own death, we understand why he says he's going to live in the resurrection, but the disciples are going to live through this. They're not going to die at this time. So why is he telling them that they will live too? Well, his resurrection life that has triumphed over sin and death becomes theirs through faith. They will die one day, but because Christ lives and they believe in him, they will live with him for eternity. That's the hope that he wanted them to get hold of in these last moments that he has with them. And that's a great hope for us too through the chaos of this world. Because Jesus lives, we will live. There's no doubt here. There's no danger of losing it after you have it. Nothing can steal this from us. Not any virus, not cancer, not financial troubles, not even death itself. But one of my fears is when we talk about the relationship between love and obedience, and if we really love them, we'll obey, some of us might be sitting there going, man, I don't deserve this life. And maybe when God sees how poorly I live, he's going to take it away from me. But that is not how this works whatsoever. We see that it isn't based upon our loving obedience. It is based upon Christ's life. It's because he lives, not because I lovingly obey. Because he lives, we will live. See, the good works aren't prerequisites for receiving this life. They are the results of salvation because Christ living in us brings them out. And that's exactly where this hopeful passage turns next. As in verse 20, Jesus says, 
that in that day they'll know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Well, first of all, when they see him resurrected, that validates all the claims that he made about himself and that he is one with his Father God. But then he continues and says that in that day, you're going to be in me, and I will be in you. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because um, we've seen so far that uh, the Spirit will be in us one day. Now, Jesus said, I will be in you. And I'd like to suggest, just as back in verse 17, we saw the Spirit dwelled with his people through Christ dwelling with them. Here, Christ will be in us through the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. In fact, I think this whole section is about Christ's presence comforting us through the Holy Spirit. So we can add to that little statement that we started out with. True love for Christ obeys through the Holy Spirit's presence. Now, in verse 21, Jesus continues to talk about the relationship between love and obedience. And here he says that it's about those who love him have and keep his commandments. And I think keeping his commandments seems simple enough to us, but what does he mean by having his commandments? Surely he doesn't mean simply knowing about them, right? Well, no. He, the idea here is that they have them in their heart. We, we make them our own. See, loving Christ in this way is uh, we love his commandments as well. See, this isn't a sterile obedience here. This is a love for all that Christ has called us to do. Now, we teach our kids to be respectful of others, but we don't want them to simply do it to satisfy us or because they might get in trouble if they don't. We want them to realize the importance of respect and how that makes their lives better. But we also want them to internalize it and realize this is an important truth to make their own. And the same is true here. Christ wants us to have his commands in our hearts. Now, the one who strives to internalize Christ's commands in this way isn't somebody who lives in constant fear of slipping up. Christ isn't finger-wagging at them or threatening them, boy, you better obey me or else you're in big trouble. Instead, with this call to loving obedience, Christ is making promises to them. Do you see that? Uh, in the end of verse 21, it says that those who love him this way will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus takes our feeble efforts at loving obedience and lavishes his love upon us through the Spirit. So the Spirit is the vehicle, so far we've seen, of the living and loving presence of our Lord. But more than that, this presence Jesus says, manifests itself to us. Now, immediately this manifestation will be in the resurrection to the disciples. He's going to show himself to them after the cross, and that is huge. But I want to suggest the way he answers Judas's question that happens in a minute also shows he has a, a, a further manifestation in mind here. See, Judas, by the way, here is not Judas Iscariot. It's the other disciple named Judas who unfortunately shares his same name. This Judas asks Jesus, well, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to anyone else in the world? And, and Jesus' answer is instructive. If 
but I want to, before getting into that, I want to look at how he begins in verse 23, because he goes back to the relationship of love and obedience. This time, at the beginning of verse 23, you'll see he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's a little different this time. Rather than my commandments, he says, my word. And word is singular. That means it's a collective noun. Or in other words, it's for all of his teachings. And so what we're seeing here is that this call to obedience isn't simply about following a bunch of ethical principles, following a humongous book of do's and don'ts. This is about our love for Christ just making us want to follow him, you know? It it isn't about rules, it's about a lifestyle that yearns to go after our Lord. Our love for Christ leads us to a transformed life in every way as we follow all of his teachings that we find in the word. Now, back to Judas's question. Jesus answers by starting out with talking about this love, and he's showing the difference between the world and the disciples because the disciples believe in him, and so they have this loving obedience, but the the world doesn't believe in him, and so they neither love Christ nor obey him, of course. And that differentiation then leads Christ to say, well, what's the difference? Because you believe in me, he goes on to say, uh, not just that they will be loved by my father. And Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, he says, we will come to him. This is the end of verse 23. My apologies. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. If you see that there. See, that's a interesting teaching because... He says that the Father and the Son are going to come and make their home in the believers. Now, again, I'd like to suggest that just as in verse 17, the Spirit dwelled in them through Christ, the Father and Son will make a home or dwell in them through, dwell in believers through the Spirit. And so um, that presence is experienced by us through the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And this is sort of the outcome of the unity within the Trinity that we find here. But I think on a more practical level, we should think back to earlier in the chapter where Jesus made that great promise where he said that he is going away to prepare a place for us. And he's going to come back and bring us to these beautiful rooms that he's preparing for us in God's presence in heaven. There's a home for us awaiting us in heaven. Our home is not here on earth, but it's in heaven. But remarkably, as we yearn and wait for that day when we're finally reunited with our Lord, remarkably, Jesus goes on to say, in the meantime, the Father and the Son make their home in us through the Spirit. That's a a, a beautiful thought, isn't it? Uh, We enjoy a foretaste of heaven through the life-giving presence of the Spirit with us on earth. In fact, Christ's living, loving, and now we've seen it's a revealing and a lasting, this is forever, a lasting presence is experienced by believers through the indwelling Spirit with whom Christ is one in Trinity. And this presence helps us to love Christ as we should. We've seen true love for Christ obeys through the Holy Spirit's presence. What a comfort to the believer's I mean, for the disciples who will soon see their Lord crucified, knowing that he will come back to them. And he's not going to leave them as orphans after he ascends, but the spirit of the presence will be with, his presence will be with them 
what a comfort for us as well. As we seek by the same Spirit's presence to help us in our devotion to all Christ taught us. But this next section gets a little bit more specific on the ministry of Christ. I mean the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's read it now starting in verse 25. If you want to look in your Bibles. In verse 25 to the end of the chapter it says this. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So verse 25 begins again with another reminder of the urgency and the tender care for Jesus in these final teachings with his disciples. In this passage, he's going to cover a few various ministries of the Holy Spirit to us. And so now we can add to this little uh, passage and say, this little statement and say, true love for Christ obeys through the Holy Spirit's presence and, sorry, excuse me, the Holy Spirit's ministry as well. So in verse 26, Jesus tells them that the Spirit is sent from the Father in the name of the Son, this beautiful Trinitarian verse that covers all members of the Godhead. I, I think it's useful to see that the Spirit's role here as this, this another helper that was described earlier He's coming in the name of the Son. He's coming as an emissary. He's coming to continue the Son's ministry in us. That's useful in part because there's slight distinction between their ministries. But it's also useful, I think, because the ministries are very, very similar. And I, I fear sometimes that there's a tendency for, for believers to clearly see the personhood of the Father and the Son. I mean, they're even a Father and a Son. That implies personhood right away. But when we talk about the Spirit, sometimes we can, we can reduce Him to some kind of a, a, a divine force that Jesus uses in our life. But that would be absolutely wrong. Je the Holy Spirit is as much a person as Jesus is. And He comes to continue. He comes in Jesus' name to continue that ministry of helping in believers' lives as he indwells us. Now, um, <clears throat> the first part of that ministry covered at the end of verse eight, uh, verse twenty, uh, verse um, sorry, verse twenty-five or verse twenty-six is that he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is quite a comfort for us. Because spoken to the disciples, as this is, this means that while John wrote this gospel many years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring to mind all that Jesus said, we can have confidence in what John recorded and what Matthew, Mark, and Luke record in the gospels, because the Holy Spirit inspired their writings and made sure they remembered everything accurately. More than that, the Holy Spirit helped them to understand those teachings. Because very often they didn't understand them when they first heard them. But the, the Spirit 
helps them in understanding. We see that in John chapter 2 and verse 22. This is a passage in which uh, Jesus had been speaking of his resurrection, and of course the disciples predictably were misunderstanding. But, Jesus, but John adds this uh, sort of editorial note in verse 22, and he says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here we see them remembering and understanding after the fact with the help of the Holy Spirit. But while this primarily refers to the disciples recalling and recording the gospel, I do think that there's a secondary application that applies to us and how the Spirit works in our lives to help us recall His Word in timely moments and to understand His Word by that Spirit. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not referring to any new revelation that we're receiving by the Spirit, but simply God's Word being brought back to our minds and being understood better through the Spirit's power. I experienced that recall recently as I was going through an unpleasant but not a dangerous medical procedure where they were putting me under for about 40 minutes. I was nervous despite the fact I was in good hands because, I mean, who likes to go through a procedure? And as you guys know, I, I struggle with the sin of worrying. And so going through something like that, because I, I rarely have to go into hospitals, that would be a time where I might normal, normally struggle with worry. But in the, the few hours before, I felt quite an incredible calm and peace as the Spirit brought back to my mind one of, a verse that I'd looked at in my a morning meditation a number of days before that in Isaiah. In Isaiah 26 and 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In that moment, see, I hadn't tried to memorize the verse. I just spent time thinking about it in my morning devotion days before that. But in that moment, very vividly, the Spirit brought that verse and actually a surrounding verses around it to my mind. And I was able to claim that promise and I found incredible peace through the Spirit ministering the Word into my heart in that way. And while this verse, of course, and I don't want to deny this verse is primarily about the ministry of the Spirit of uh, to the disciples and recalling the words of Christ, I do think it applies at times like that in our lives at time. But if the Spirit helps us recall His Word, that means it was already in our memory, right? It's got to be in here for Him to help us recall it. And so we have to be reading His Word. We have to be spending time thinking on it, meditating on it. We have to spend time memorizing it because we need to give the Spirit something to work with. Spirit sometimes looks to recall the word and he finds spiritually empty minds and that is very, very tragic. But actually the peace that the Spirit helped me receive in those moments is a very good transition to what Christ says next. As in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Here peace is like an inheritance we receive upon the death of Christ. It's his peace that we receive and enjoy this is the peace he will win for us on the cross. Now, this is the peace that we have between us and God. And we can only be received through faith in Christ. And I wonder, do you have this peace? It makes a huge difference. You get this peace by surrendering to God. Giving up on your, your sinful rebellion against his rule in your life. Repenting of that sin, and turning to Christ's death as payment for your punishment. Then, 
Then, when you put your faith in that beautiful verse, Jesus said better, I will live because he lives. Then you are saved, and that life is yours in Christ. Now, not, and that's the only time that you'll be able to enjoy these beautiful ministries of the Spirit that we've been looking at this morning, if you accept Christ into your life, and I pray you will. Christ continues and says, not as the world gives do I give to you, because the peace he's offering isn't counterfeit, and it isn't short-lived. This is true, everlasting peace between us and God received in Christ. And from this peace, Jesus makes the appeal, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, he knew his disciples were headed for a whole world of trouble, both internally and externally. They would soon see their teacher bleeding on a cross, and that would throw them into confusion and despair because they didn't expect that, and they wouldn't understand that. And even after they met their risen Lord, still he knew the long road ahead of them with persecution, with troubles and trials ahead. See, Jesus came to give us peace with God, but that same peace can keep us from being troubled and being afraid here and now. He gives us this peace, and then he calls us to live into this peace that he's given us through the cross. It doesn't just save us eternally. It can help save us from feeling distress and fear in the here and now. If the all-powerful Son of God loved me enough to die on the cross for me, surely nothing can happen to me outside of his will. And that doesn't mean bad things will happen because he died on a cross. We know difficulties are coming. He's warning them. He's preparing them for these very things. But then he's giving them the tools that they will need to meet those things. And one of those tools is the peace that we have with God. And it is a useful thing. We will face times of hardship. But it doesn't need to throw us into confusion and helplessness. When we remember that we have this peace with God that is not touched by anything this world has to throw at us. And that very peace the Spirit can cause to control our mind and still those very fears. Because as you know, peace is one of the lists of the fruit that the Spirit produces in the lives of believers. It's possible to be in very unpleasant circumstances and yet to have peace flowing like a river in your heart. Because the peace isn't dependent upon these other things. This peace is Christ's peace. It's dependent upon him and received through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. That's what I experienced before my procedure. The Spirit pressing the peace I received through my salvation in Christ into the immediate experience of my life. And I'm not special here. This is something available to all believers. This peace can fill our hearts and crowd out the fears. We can have it even in the midst of, I think, many people being afraid of catching this virus. Yes, we need to be cautious, but we don't need to have hearts full of fear. Because he lives, we will live no matter what happens. That's the peace we have. And some people, I think, have a lot of financial worries and worries about their future. But we can bring those to the author of peace and find that peace stilling those worries. You might have insecurities about the coming school year 
or about a job, and those are very real insecurities, I know. But um, there is something that is absolutely secure and unmoving, and that can be your rock and the foundation and the refuge that you flee to when other things don't make sense. That peace you have with God can't be taken away. Fears, what do they accomplish? All they do is sap our energy, sap our strength, and erode our faith. So instead of letting them feast and prey upon you in that way, give them over to the Spirit and let Him fill you with Christ's peace. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to cover the remainder a little bit quickly. Uh, verse 28, we see Jesus gently chiding His disciples for their sorrow that He is leaving them. As he says, that um, if they loved him, that should make them glad at his departing. Why? Because I am, this is at the end of verse 28, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. The greatness of the Father is seen in sending Jesus, who is submitted in his incarnation as a servant to enact the Father's plan of redemption by dying on the cross for us. The idea is that the disciples should be happy that Jesus' time of humiliation is coming to an end with the cross. And then he returns to the glories where his Father is in complete victory and triumph. Jesus is again comforting his disciples by, remembering the, by reminding them the greatness of the Father. And that even though the cross is coming, he is in complete control. The cross is not a defeat. It is a victory over sin and death and hell. And what a victory. In fact, he uses the cross in his resurrection. He says to call them to faith after they see these things happen because they will see that his control has been there all along. Then in verse 30, Jesus, uh, swi 30, Jesus switches it up and, and says that the uh, ruler of this world is coming, and that's Satan. You know, if Satan is the ruler of this world, it tells us a little bit of something about this world. But Jesus says Satan has no claim on him because Christ isn't of this world and he has no sin. Instead, in verse 31, he makes a really important statement that I want to end with. He says, I do, do you see, look at this please. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And we realize when we read this verse that in Jesus in asking us to lovingly obey him, he isn't asking us anything that he hasn't done himself. As he's obeyed the Father and thus demonstrated his love for the Father. Jesus is the perfect example of loving obedience. And this is important. Because we all know that we're going to fail when it comes to loving obedience. We're going to sin and we know our love is feeble. But the peace we enjoy with God is Christ's peace. And we enjoy it because he was perfect where we couldn't be. When God looks on us, he sees Christ's perfect obedience and love in his life on earth. And he was and we are made righteous in Christ's righteousness. When we fail, and we will fail, that comforts us because it isn't about our perfect obedience but his and that's a solid, solid foundation and hope. And it gives us reason to keep at it, to keep getting back up even when we fall, to keep working through the power of this Holy Spirit. 
just going to add briefly, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm just going to add very briefly um, that you'll notice that Jesus says that uh, in this verse 31, that um, the world will know that I love the Father because he's obeyed him. It wasn't just us. It's them out there. And when we have this loving obedience for our God, that's part of our evangelistic message to them. They see it. They're watching. And it's another way we share the gospel. And what a glorious gospel that we've been looking at here. As we realize that we're going to fall short as we try to have that good testimony, as we try to live in loving obedience for him, we also realize Christ knew we struggle. That's why he's provided for us this other, this other helper. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to help us. In this passage, we have seen true love for Christ obeys through Christ, the Holy Spirit's presence and ministry. Brothers and sisters, let's thank God for the gospel and for the spirit that indwells us. And with his help, let's renew our efforts to express true love that obeys out of worship for him and to give him glory and to let others know. I think now we'll switch to uh, the praise anthem. <laughs>